0: listening to the weekly sermon from Antioch East Baptist Church located in Magnolia, Arkansas. For more information about our faith and local congregation, visit antiocheast.com. Look at verse 1 of chapter 3 it says, "What advantage then has the Jew or what is the profit of circumcision?" Much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, and every man a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. Certainly not, for then how will God judge the world? For if the truth of God was increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil that good may come, as we are slanderously reported as some affirm that we say, their condemnation is just. One of Paul's teaching techniques is mock discourses. He does it all through his writings, especially in the book of Romans. That's basically questions and answers with an unseen opponent. He raises up arguments to his teaching, then defends it with answers. He raises up arguments against what he's been teaching as if somebody were actually, and maybe somebody was, he probably had some people in his mind, i guarantee you, and then he defends them with his answer. It is common throughout the book. For example, we find the most famous one of them in Romans 9, 19, where it says, You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault for who has resisted his will? Verse 20 says, But indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Here in our text, we see this technique used. No doubt, he had been asked these questions before by many other people, I'm sure. Matter of fact, we know that from verse 8. Look at verse 8. He says, as we are slanderously reported as some affirm that we say. In other words, he said, I'm asking these questions because I've been asked them myself and I've been accused of teaching something wrong about them. Now, here is what the Bible, and this is what God has revealed to me about them. But somebody was disagreeing with him. Somebody was slandering him because of his reports. Our text is basically a parenthesis, I believe. A parenthesis, as we've already studied, he shows the guilt of the Jew. He has showed the guilt of the heathen. That wasn't hard. He has showed the guilt of the hypocrite Those that look down their nose at the heathen. He says, oh, don't accuse them. You know you do the same things. Maybe you keep it secret. Mama may not know. Daddy may not know, but God knows. And then he says, and you Jews, you think that you have the law that's going to save you and the commandments and your circumcision. you trust all those things. But all those are worthless if you don't have a new heart. You're in the same place as all the rest. So he shows the guilt of the heathen. He shows the guilt of the hypocrite. He shows the guilt of the Hebrews. And in between that and the next section, which is the guilt of all humankind, he has this little parenthesis. He throws up these questions that he knows people are going to ask because he just dealt with the Jews. They're different. They're God's chosen people. They're special to God. Shouldn't they get a pass on some of these things? Well, that's what we'll deal with. Before he goes on, he wants to answer some of those objections that are certainly coming up. Now listen to me. Listen to this. I believe these verses to be an introduction at least or a a mini form of chapters 9 through 11. And so, when we get to chapters 9 through 11, we will expand on these subjects. So, that's why I'm covering just in one sermon and get through this quickly today. Here in our text, we have four questions and answers that Paul briefly explains. Number one, the first question look at it. Verse one, what advantage then has the Jews? What advantage is it to be a Jew? If these things you're saying, Paul, that everybody's guilty, everybody's in the same position, there's no difference to the Jew first and also to the Greek, but the Jew is a sinner and so is the Gentile and both have to be saved by grace and faith in Christ alone, then what profit is it being Jewish? And I'm sure there are some Jews saying, you're taking away our special place. Not really. Their special place is not based upon their physical descendancy. Their special place is based upon their faith in Christ and His election of them. Now, first of all, let's consider the context. Always. Always. That's always a rule, right? Look back at chapter 2 and verse 28. For He is not a Jew who is one outwardly. Let me read that again. He is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men but from God. Those are great verses. Great verses. In other words, Jews are not Jews because they come from Abraham. If you want to be a real Jew or what we call now a completed Jew, you must believe in Jesus. Theirs was the same problem of the heathen verse 18 look at chapter 1 verse 18 this is the heathen's problem for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men here's the real problem who suppress or who hide or who push down the truth in unrighteousness we don't believe you John the Baptist we don't believe you Jesus we don't believe you apostles we don't believe you Paul we suppress the truth, because we love our sin, and we don't want to accept it. Their problem was they didn't want God, and they didn't want to believe Him. Now it's the same problem of the hypocrite. Look at chapter two. Look at chapter two, verse four. Or do you despise the riches of the goodness and forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? Turning from sin and turning to God. It's, it's the flip side of the same coin. Faith is on one side. You turn to God and you're a pen of the world. You can't go north if you don't turn away from the south. But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God because you will not repent. You will not admit, I am a sinner. I cannot save myself and call on the name of the Lord. That was their problem. That was the heathen's problem. And it is the Hebrews' problem. The Jews had the same problem as the rest. Their heart was dead spiritually. All men's hearts are dead spiritually. You were born dead now, you've got to consider the question. That's the context, but now consider the question. The question there in verse 2 is this. Again, chapter 3, verse, two, uh, or verse 1. What advantage then has the Jew? If the Jews were in the same boat as everybody else, what advantage is there then in being a Jew? Well, he answers it. The first answer is much in every way. Much in every way. In Magnolia, Arkansas, we have what? Would it be safe to say 30 churches? I think that would be very safe to say. 30 churches. Isn't that amazing? And not one of them are filled. It's amazing this morning probably. But we have 30 churches. I mean, you can't trip in this town without knocking your head on a church. That's not a bad thing. I've heard people talk about that negative. Man, that's, that's not a bad thing. Especially when you got good churches. And we have good churches here in Magnolia. Hey, listen, if you hear this on the podcast, know this. Antioch East, is it's not in competition with First Baptist or, 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 or with uh, uh, Central or anything. We're not in competition. We pray that today God saves people at those churches. Amen. Amen? But the point is this, is that we have so many churches. But there's not that many churches in Iran. If you go to hell from Magnolia, Arkansas, you will go down deeper into hell than someone who dies without Christ in Iran how much sore punishment suppose you of those who reject the blood you have a better responsibility here in Magnolia because you you hear it all the time you can see it on the TV you can hear it on the radio and you have you know if you say well I live in Magnolia I never went to church so I never heard it whose fault is that? No, my friend, much in every way the Jews had an advantage. Why? Because they had churches on every corner. <laughs> Synagogues, temples, the Word of God. As we have stated in Romans 9 through 11 expounds on these subjects. Let me read to you. This is Romans 9 verse 3. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites. Now listen, to them pertain the adoption, the glory The covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, the promises of them are the fathers. And from them, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all and eternally blessed of God. Amen. They had all those advantages. How many churches were in Babylon? How many churches were in Nineveh? How many synagogues were there in in that day in Europe? How many synagogues over near China? There weren't any. Millions and millions of people died without hope and went to hell having never heard of God. And yet here Israel was. God came to them. He called them. He blessed them. He gave them the word. Yeah, much in every way. They had all these things, the adoption, the father. God committed to them all these things. They and they alone amongst all mankind received the transcript of the eternal mind, were trusted with His own engraved laws and constituted guardians of His cause. There's were the prophets, there's the priestly call, and there's by birth the Savior of us all. Yes, they had an advantage. And especially in this, number two, to them were committed the oracles of God. Now, some of you are saying, great, wonderful, what is that? Is that a candy bar? <laughs> the oracles of God. Now, we hear this on TV all the time, talk about the oracle. They had the oracle of Delphi, you remember that? And then I think, what's that, the matrix, you know, they had to consult with the oracle and all that stuff. They almost got it right. But the word oracle is very simple. It means words, utterances, or statements. And then when you say the oracles of God, there's only one word to describe that, Scripture. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, God gave to us through Moses. And then he gave to us uh, the books of history. Then he gave us the books of prophecy. And he gave Israel. He gave Israel these things. He gave them the prophets and the minor prophets. And the major. Prophets. To them were given the words of God. And they took them and hid them and became arrogant when the purpose was is to take them and spread them and be a blessing to all people. It was that's in the covenant, Abraham. You'll be a blessing to all people. The Jews, for the most part, did not believe, although they had the scriptures and they knew them. Now you gotta imagine some little Jewish boy or girl, and their daddy grabs them by the hand and says, Come on, and they go out to the corral and they grab a lamb that they have specially raised for the purpose. And in one hand, one hand, the father takes a lamb. And on the other hand, he takes his son by the hand or his daughter or his children. And they march off. And the whole time, the son or the daughter is asking, Daddy, why are we taking the lamb? He said, Well, the lamb is what God told us to do, to take a lamb, a perfect lamb. That lamb has no blemish on it, son. And we're taking it to the temple, and we're going to kill it, son. We're going to sacrifice it and we're going to shed its blood and the priests are going to take it and put it on the altar as an offering for our sin. And while he offers for the sin, we're going to stand outside and we're going to pray and ask God to forgive us our sins. And then he's going to take some of the blood and put it on a scapegoat and that scapegoat is going to go out into the wilderness symbolizing that our sins go away from us never to return. Now, son, let's read in Genesis. Let's read in Exodus. And they taught their kids day and night. They would put the Scriptures on their foreheads and on their hands and on the doors. And they over and over and over again would train their children in the ways of the law and the things of God. And I want to tell you, every one of these Jews that heard Jesus preaching and teaching knew the law and knew what he was saying was true. But they didn't want it God's way. They wanted it their way. They wanted it their way. Yet Jesus said to them in John 5, 39, You search the Scripture, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. He said, read the Scriptures. Remember what you're taught. They teach of me and you know it. How in the world can you read Isaiah 53 and not see Jesus? How can you read Psalm 2 and not see Jesus? How can you not read Psalm 23 and know that it is Jesus? It's amazing. You've got to read it to see all the times you see the symbolism of the Messiah. Why did the Jews... Reject him because they're dead in sin. And although they had all the advantages, still they, for the most part, rejected their Messiah. Number two, if that's true, their unbelief forces God to be unfaithful to his promise. I mean, if God called the Jews, they're God's special people, and yet he sends someone to hell, he was unfaithful. He didn't keep his promise. Oh, listen to this point. This is good. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true and every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and you may overcome when you are judged. It's very hard. He really doesn't answer him. He just says, "No, God never lies." Basically, that's all he says. Paul's answer, though, you know what he does. All Paul does in his answer is to defend the faithfulness of God, the trustworthiness of God, the truthfulness of God, and the sovereignty of God. That's all he does. He didn't tell them why or what. He just says, listen, God's always right. If you have a problem with it, you're the one that's wrong. Say amen. Verse 4, certainly not. This is the strongest negative in the Greek language. It means no, 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 or may it never be. Or God forbid, we'd say it, God forbid that. No, never. It's the strongest phrase. He says, no, that's not true. Let God be true to every man a liar. He quotes Psalm 51, 4. If you don't understand it, he says the problem is with you. He's more blunt in chapter 9. Verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who has resisted his will? But indeed, oh man, who are you to reply against God? In other words, you ought to just be quiet. Who are you to answer back to God? This morning in our Sunday school class, Zechariah, who knew the Old Testament, knew the story of Abraham, knew the story of Samson, he knew the story of Gideon, he knew the story of all those Old Testament people, eight out of ten of them questioned God and God had to smack them around a bit. And still Zechariah heard from the angel of God and still doubted. Still doubted. He knew the Word of God. They knew the Word of God. And why are you answering back to God? If he said it, it's true. If there's any injustice, you know this. It's in you, not in God. Paul's unknown inquisitors forget that God not only promised blessings in his covenant, but he also pronounced judgments for the covenant breakers. That's all they think of. That's all we ever think about. It's the good. God is love. God is love. And we talk about judgment. We talk about hell. We talk about and warn people about the coming judgment. Oh, let's talk about God's love. Let's talk about God's love. What they forget is God is, is a God of mercy, is a God of grace. It is God that came to them. They didn't come to Him. God came to them. And they're the ones that rejected, they're the ones that disbelieved. They're the ones that acted like heathens. MacArthur said, Tragically, however, Jews had focused much attention on their privileges, but little on their responsibilities. All the time, some of y'all here, you soften your sin, you try to rationalize your sin, you try to rationalize your unfaithfulness with, Well, God is love, isn't he? He's, he's a mercy. He's got he's to give a second chance. God is love, God is merciful, but he don't have to give a first chance. He's God. Well, he's he's got you know. I want God just to be fair. No, you don't. Or you're going to go to hell. If God is fair, everybody goes to hell. One man among all the millions and billions of people who have ever been on this earth—if one man alone was saved by God, just one man—God would be infinitely gracious. I can tell that might bother somebody, but that's the truth. What it is, you think too much of yourself. And don't understand just how holy God is and how He demands holiness. We're in trouble without Jesus. The further answer that Paul will expound in chapters 9 through 11 is that God will judge unbelieving Israel and will save an elect remnant. If you would, everybody get your copy of God's Word and turn to Romans 11, 1 through 7. Listen. Listen. I say then, has God cast away his people? Talking about Israel. Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. In other words, he said, man, I am a Jew of Jews and I'm going to heaven. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know that the scripture says of Elijah? Now, if you remember this story, Elijah running from that... Jezebel, scared, kind of gets in a pity party and how he pleads with God against Israel saying, Lord, they killed your prophets and they tore down your altars and I alone am left and they seek my life. And he was blaming God. How could you let this happen to me, God? But what does God say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. He said, Elijah, you're not the only one. I'm the God of grace, I'm the God of mercy, and I've reserved for myself 7,000 men, I've hid them out in a cave over there. Verse 5, even so then, at this present time, we're talking about the time that Paul was writing this, there is a remnant according to the election, the choosing, the selecting of grace, unmerited favor. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, works is no longer works. You can't have both. What then, question mark? And here's the answer. Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. Now, we'll we'll explain those scriptures more plainly when we get to them, but here's the point. God is always going to have a people. He is always, all through the Old Testament, you see it in every prophet, he says there's gonna be a remnant. There's gonna be a stem. I may cut down the tree, but there's gonna be a sprout. I'm always gonna have a people. It doesn't matter what happens. I will have a people and it's always of the election of grace. God's choosing. I will have mercy on who I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. God always has a people. And not just because you're born of Abraham are you his chosen people, but you've got to be chosen on the inside to be saved. That's what makes a true Jew, is one who is one on the inside. We'll get to that verses later. Number three, if our sin glorifies God's goodness, they asked, isn't he unjust to judge us? If we're just doing what it takes to glorify God through his judgment, you hear what they're saying? They are saying in essence it's not fair if what we do makes God look better that he would judge us. If what we do makes God look better and makes him better then why is he judging us? Paul says, I speak as a man. He says this is a fleshly. Basically what he's saying is you're blaspheming. Again he says certainly not. He used that word again. God will judge sin, this is what you ought to do. Instead of asking questions, you should repent. You should repent of your sin. Well, if my sin makes God, let me tell you something. It don't matter what you do. It's all going to work out to the glory of God. It's all in his plan. All in his plan. God gets, the Bible says, every last drop of glory goes to him. And yes, he's going to be gloried in those that he judges, but he's going to be gloried in those that he saves. And asking that very question tells me that you're far from the kingdom of God. You're not humble, you're not broken. Israel was not humble. Israel was not broken. They were full of pride and arrogance. That was their problem. That's everybody's problem. Today, you ought to quit asking questions and start declaring, Oh God, I'm a sinner and i will never survive the judgment if I don't have you forgiven me by the blood of Christ. Fourth question. If my sin works God's grace, basically is what they're saying. Look at verse 7. Let's read verse 7. For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to His glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? Now, I believe this question is different than the ones in 5 and 6. Now, here's where a lot of people may disagree. That's fine. You can disagree. But what I'm fixing to tell you is good stuff, and I think it's what he means. Why am I judged as a sinner if my lie glorifies Him? If you're saying I get saved by grace, why am I still? What's wrong? If my sin works God's grace, shouldn't... We sin more. Shouldn't we just sin more and more? He will deal with this question more in chapter 6 verse 1 where it says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? That's what they were saying to him. That's what they are saying. Oh, Paul, won't you go out there and sin and sin and sin and sin and live like a a reprobate and like a heathen so that you make God look good because he's going to have grace and just forgive you for a minute. You Baptist, believe you can live any old way you want to. You ever heard that I think that once you save, you always say. I think when you get saved, this is the promise that He promised you eternal life. And if you lose it, God's a liar. He's a liar. Who, uh, the Bible says that God loved this world so much He gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have what? Doesn't say might have everlasting life, says he will have everlasting life. You old Baptist think you can live any way you want to. You're right. You are exactly right. I believe that you can live any old way you want to. You know what? If you're saved, you want to live righteously. You want to forsake sin and you want to obey God. You want to go to church. Hey, if you don't like going to church, you're not saved. I'm going to say that again because I want a louder amen. If you don't like going to church, you're not saved. If you don't love and aren't drawn by the people of God, you have not had that miracle work in your heart that changes you. You had not had it. And if that offends you, please wait till then my sermon. Let me explain it a little bit. But you love God when you get saved. If you claim to know Christ and live in unrepentant sin, you have not been saved. The Bible says they went out from us. They went out from us. They just quit church, quit God, went out. Now you listen to me because I know you have a lot of family members and yet we have even church members on the road that they leave church and they never go back. Some of them swear I'm never going back to church. They went out from us, First John says, because they never were of us. If they had been of us in the first place, they never would have left us. They never were of us. If you claim to know Christ and live in unrepentant sin... You have not been saved. I don't. I didn't say you sin. We all sin. I got news. I know y'all are not gonna believe it, but your preacher sins. See, stunned. <laughs> I still sin because I have this flesh. This will be explained in chapter six and seven of Romans. Stick around. Hallelujah! It's explained. Paul even said, "I'm the chief of sinners." He didn't say I was. He said, "I am the chief of sinners." And he says, their condemnation is just. What does that mean? He, he says his question, he talks about that, and he says, their condemnation... He said, in other words, these people raise these questions, their condemnation is just because they don't know Jesus, basically. Let me give you the conclusion of the matter. Here's the conclusion. God is holy and hates sin. We are unholy and love our sin. We get saved and we hate our sin... And we love holiness. Amen. If you don't love holiness, you don't know God. If you don't hate sin, you don't know God. That's what salvation does to you. It changes you. The proof of salvation is not a profession. The proof of salvation is a changed life. These are hard verses. And some may disagree with my interpretation in places. I believe that I've got the big picture correct. But I want you to leave with this. All men are dead in sin, but some by grace through faith are regenerated to new life and love what they once hated and hate what they once loved and desire to follow God in His holiness. Do you? Do you? If not, call on the name of the Lord. Call on the name of the Lord and be saved.